0: All right, Jesse, last week's episode reinforced that it's always the husband. What are we hearing about this time? When a troubled young woman meets
1: her knight in shining armor, both of their families hope for a happy ending fit from a fairy tale. Instead, their union is plagued by addiction, infidelity, and finally, murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about ardent affairs, scandalous
0: secrets, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your
1: podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thank you all so much for everything you've done. It's just been, it's been a real ride lately. And we can't tell you guys how much you mean to us.
0: It's been awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. And as we get into, you know, Thanksgiving season, I'm
0: feeling very grateful for all of our listeners and mostly for you, Andrea. You'll probably spend the whole month saying that, especially (laughs) the reviews. (laughs)
1: I will. I'm kind of like jumping the holiday season, guys. It's it's on
0: brand. (laughs) It is on brand. What candle do you have lit today? Oh, (laughs) you can see it. You can see my holiday candle. I saw your husband lighting it for you before you came down.
1: It is a Yankee Candle Cider House is what I am lighting today in the studio. But yeah, what else is on brand for us is jumping right into the story. So why don't we get to it? Greg DeVillers was a young, handsome college student in the prime of his life during the Christmas holiday season of 1994 when he and his middle brother, Jerome, were taking their youngest brother, Bertrand, still a teenager, on a rite of passage trip to Tijuana, Mexico, to buy him his first ever alcoholic beverage. Dusk had turned to dark by the time the brothers traipsed down the dirty sidewalk leading to the turnstile at the border crossing. Heaps of people laughing, talking, commuting, tourists and day laborers alike all pushed through the gates as Greg and his gang revved up for a fun night out. Greg was approaching a turnstile when a woman bumped into him. In the accident, she dropped her brown leather jacket and both Greg and she went to pick it up, their hands grazing one another's. They both laughed, and Greg noticed how beautiful the thin petite blonde was. Her name was Kristen. She was alone, and she'd been having a few troubled weeks since Thanksgiving. Kristen, though brilliant, accomplished, and intelligent, was failing out of her first semester of college. She had relapsed on drugs, and her world was in a spiral. But when sweet Greg, with his wide eyes and kind smile, reached out for her jacket and laughed along with her, she felt a pull a light to the darkness that her life had become. Greg, of course, didn't know yet about Kristen's issues. He just found himself becoming swept away by the quirky, bright, beautiful girl. The DeVillers boys gamely invited Kristen along with them, and Greg and Kristen flirted and chatted in front of a backdrop of colorful murals and the bright lights of bars and clubs. By the time the crew crossed back into the United States, Greg was smitten with Kristen and even brought her home that very first night to his apartment. Stop. Oh, yeah. The two made love and were instantly inseparable. Kristen basically just moved in after that first night. And they were never apart again. Until years later, when death would divide the couple forevermore. This is a story about the lengths we will go to to save the ones we love, the darkness of addiction, the heat of infidelity, and of course, the ultimate betrayal, murder. So let's talk about Kristen to get started. Kristen Rossum was born on October 25th, 1976 in Memphis, Tennessee, the eldest of three kids. She had two younger brothers. Her father, Ralph, was a political science professor, and her mother, Constance, was a marketing researcher who also ended up in academia later on. The family moved around a lot for career opportunities in various institutions of higher learning. So Kristen ended up being raised in places like Chicago, California, Virginia, amongst like pretty much everywhere all over the country. Kristen was an adorable, toe-headed child who began modeling at the age of four. Okay. So between four and six, she was in several national ad campaigns for big companies like Marshall Fields, Sears, McDonald's, and Montgomery Ward. At six, she traded in modeling for ballet and began a serious study of dance when the family moved to Claremont, California in 1984. Kristen was dedicated to not just ballet, but also her schoolwork. And I think that Kristen was described by many people as a perfectionist. I also think that her parents instilled a lot of that into her. Okay. Later on, some friends will say that they believe that the Rossums had very high expectations for Kristen. And because they were both academics, there was an expectation that she would you know, achieve scholastically, but also there was a big focus on her appearance as well, as you can imagine somebody who started modeling at such an early age, you know? Yeah, no, that's, of course, how could it not? And then, of course, when you're training as a a serious ballerina, there's a lot of other expectations about you physically. I mean, I can't even imagine that type of pressure. It looks crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. She ended up scoring a starring role as the Sugar Plum Fairy and getting accepted to a prestigious summer program with the Boston Ballet, all while maintaining perfect grades. Wow. Yeah, I mean, she is rocking and rolling. When Kristen was 15, she enrolled in an Episcopalian boarding school in Virginia so she could dance in a professional ballet troupe in nearby Richmond. But disaster struck when she suffered a bad another dancer dropped her. Yikes. How old was she at this time? She was only 15. And the fall resulted in several torn ligaments, which ended up being a career-ending injury. Oh my god, no. Yeah, it was devastating to her. At 16, Kristen returned home to California, a different person. You know, the end of ballet had really, really depressed her. And you know, I think it was the first time in her life that she hadn't been able to achieve something she had set her heart on. Yeah. So she responded by experimenting with drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. She was also battling some body issues. It was said by some people that Kristen suffered from body dysmorphic disorder. So she is like a teeny tiny five, two, and like maybe a hundred pounds. Okay. But she never felt thin enough. Like her whole life, she was plagued by body issues. So she began to abuse diet pills and laxatives to try to lose more and more weight. Yikes. Like I said, Kristen already had a strong inclination towards perfectionism. And I think that she also had a desire for control in some ways. And at this point, she had no control over, you know, her ballet career ending And she was starting to kind of like spin out a little bit as far as her extracurricular activities were going. I think that trying to control her weight was like one thing to try to manage her stress, you know? Yep. And her younger brother started noticing that Kristen was acting erratically and she started staying up all night, even on school nights. And they were concerned enough to report this behavior to their parents, but... Kristen was still getting good grades at this point. And, you know, she seemed to have normal friends. She was a pretty popular girl. So they weren't immediately alarmed. Had they known what was really going on, though, Ralph and Constance would have been extremely concerned. Unbeknownst to Kristen's parents, a schoolmate of Kristen's had introduced her to crystal meth. Oh, God. And she had become hooked on it. Kristen's parents went on a Caribbean cruise to celebrate their anniversary, leaving Kristen in charge of her younger brothers. She ended up having some wild parties and when Ralph and Constance returned, they discovered that credit cards, checks, and a video camera had been stolen from their home. Oh. Even more alarming, Constance found a packet of white powder in the family's mailbox.
0: Someone just left it in there, a little treat. I mean, I wonder if it
1: was maybe a drug dealer's attempt at getting Kristen the drugs, you know, especially if she was like grounded for throwing parties. Yeah. Anyway, Constance found it and she was like, do you know anything about this? And Kristen straight up denied it. She was like, I don't know what that is. What even would that be? Like, what is that? And if she
0: had a party, she can totally blame it on that too, you know? Exactly.
1: However, by now, they did suspect that Kristen was involved in drugs and perhaps had something to do with the theft as well. On March 3rd of 1993, Kristen's parents confronted her as she was leaving the house and Ralph insisted on checking Kristen's backpack. The two got into an altercation and when Ralph finally wrestled it away from Kristen, he found a glass pipe, lighter plastic pen casing and some razor blades inside of a box.
0: Ooh, I don't even know what half of those are for.
1: I think that it's all related to like snorting or smoking meth. Yeah. Because there's the glass pipe, there's razor blades I think you would cut something with. An empty pen casing could be used to snort
0: it, you know? Wow. Okay. Not what you want to find in your daughter's bag.
1: No, not even remotely. And I think that there was an assumption that this was all drug paraphernalia. So both parents and Kristen got into a physical fight at this time. I think she was trying to get the box back and they were trying to take it away from her and then she was trying to leave the house and they were trying to get her not to leave the house. It ended up getting so bad that she ended up grabbing a knife and locking herself in a bathroom. And she told her parents that she was going to slit her wrists and kill herself. Oh, no. Yeah. So she did make some superficial cuts on her wrist before Constance and Ralph managed to coax her out. But none were bad enough that they had to, like, take her to the hospital at this point, you know? The next day, after she was caught repeatedly punching her locker... A school counselor pulled her aside and Kristen told the counselor that she was being abused at home. The counselor called the police who did observe some bruising on Kristen's arm where her father had grabbed her during their altercation. So the Rossums were then investigated for child abuse, but eventually cleared. The incident was enough to shake up the whole family and Kristen did stay off drugs for a little while after this. Just when Ralph and Constance believed that Kristen had licked the issue, she relapsed in her senior year. Following an incident where Ralph and Constance tried to take drugs and paraphernalia away from Kristen, she got violent and her parents were forced to call the police. Kristen was high when the cops showed up and her stash was found on her, so she was arrested for possession. Yikes. However, because she was a minor and, you know, a pretty white girl from an upper middle class family, they simply released her back into her
0: parents' custody. Okay, so she didn't learn anything. Nothing. Nothing.
1: That'll be kind of a trend in this. Ralph and Constance got Kristen into a 12-step program that they attended as a family and collectively decided that Kristen would not be going back to Claremont High School. Instead, she graduated early remotely and enrolled at University of Redlands nearby, where Ralph was teaching a course. Kristen's parents were hopeful that Kristen's drug days were behind her and trusted her to live in the dorms and conduct her own business. But she soon relapsed and disappeared one day in December of 1994. So Kristen had been dating a really nice boy named Teddy that she had met through her high school best friend, Melissa Prager. He was attending UCLA and he would often drive to Redlands to pick up Kristen. They would go on a date and then he would drop her off at her parents in Claremont for the weekend. So... That was the plan on December 17th when Teddy showed up to Kristen's dorm to find her gone. Yikes. Yeah. Poor Teddy. Poor Teddy. So unbeknownst to Teddy or Kristen's parents, Kristen had relapsed and stopped going to classes. She had an abysmal 1.67 GPA and had gotten a notice that she was on academic probation. Because of this, Kristen was too ashamed to go home for Christmas break. She just didn't want to face the music with her parents. So she instead went home with a male friend without telling anyone. I mean, I wouldn't want to go home to my parents either. I mean, I can understand where she's coming from, but from a parent's perspective, I would be out of my mind with worry. Yeah. On Christmas Eve, she did finally call her parents to let them know that she was safe and sound and everything was fine. And on Christmas night, she called Teddy, who met her at a dingy motel in Newport, California. Oh, my God. Yeah. He said that Kristen looked very drawn and was acting on edge. When Teddy woke up the next morning, he discovered that Kristen had emptied out his wallet and taken off. Oh, no. So what was Kristen doing? Well, Kristen got on an Amtrak train to San Diego and then took a trolley to Chula Vista where she got a cheap motel room and smoked some meth. Then feeling ready to party, she decided to hop back on the trolley to go to San Ysidro, the last stop on the US side of the border. Then she began to cross into Mexico, which is where she literally bumped into Greg DeVillers and both of their lives were changed forever. So like I said before, Greg and Kristen hit it off right away. Kristen felt safe with Greg and Greg, who had taken care of his mother emotionally his whole life, felt a familiar pull to care for the vulnerable 18-year-old. He was also just straight up attracted to Kristen. She's a really cute individual. Later on, she gets compared to Jennifer Aniston in the press, which I can kind of see, but I think it's like Jennifer Aniston mixed with little Amy Adams. Okay. Is she redhead or blonde or brunette? She's blonde. So if Amy Adams was blonde, yeah. And also like when this case gets a little bigger, it was like right around like when Jennifer Aniston was married to Brad Pitt and finishing like Friends. Like, so she was huge. So it makes sense that there was some comparison there. Yeah. But yeah, there's something vulnerable looking about her. She's obviously petite. You can see how somebody would be attracted to her, number one. But also if you're the type of guy who really likes to be there for people and is protective and wants to take care of people, that she would be very attractive, you know? So Kristen moved in with Greg, his brother Jerome, and another roommate, and Greg helped Kristen get clean. Meanwhile, her parents were absolutely frantic. They had filed a missing persons report and had discovered through Redlands that not only was Kristen failing out, she hadn't even bothered showing up for her finals. So when Kristen finally called them in January saying that she had met a wonderful man who was helping her to stay sober and get back on her feet, they were both relieved, but also still concerned. Obviously relieved that she was alive and she sounded really healthy, but concerned about this random guy they didn't even know whom she had met in the middle of a meth binge. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So they're like, We are tentatively happy. We're really glad that you're doing well. However, we'd really like to meet this guy and we want to see you in real life, please, you know? Yeah. So about a month after this conversation, they end up all having lunch together. And when they first met Greg, all of their fears subsided. Constance thought that Greg had the kindest eyes and Ralph thought that Greg was handsome and charming. Greg looks like uh, basically all Every lead in a Hallmark Christmas movie, like, (laughs) like so generically handsome, like handsome face, like kind of tall, dark, handsome. He had really big, cute brown eyes. But yeah, he's like that kind of clean cut, good looking that you'd see on the Hallmark channel. Okay. And they both really believed that Greg had Kristen's best interests at heart. By now, it had been several weeks since Kristen used, and she was working at three jobs, teaching ballet and waiting tables at a pasta restaurant and California pizza kitchen. She seemed happy and healthy and attributed that to her new relationship. The Rossums considered Greg Kristen's saving angel. And they used that exact term several times, like throughout the relationship and afterwards. Okay. So let's talk about this little angel face. Greg de Villers also came from a well educated background and was also the oldest of three kids. But other than that, Greg and Kristen had very different upbringings. Greg was born Gregory Bernard Paul Yvonne Tremolay de Villers in Chicago in 1973 to French parents Yves and Marie France. The family moved to Thousand Oaks, California, just outside of L.A., and had two more boys, Jerome and Bertrand, in 1975 and 1979. Eve was a well-respected plastic surgeon who split his time between Los Angeles and Monaco. He even fixed Walt Disney's broken nose once. Okay, that's insane. Yep, and apparently he was given a Mickey Mouse watch as a token of appreciation. The French family had it all, a big house, a big swimming pool, all of the California dream life you could possibly imagine. But Marie and Eve had a temptuous relationship and legally separated when Greg was eight and youngest son Bertrand was only two. The couple had a very long protracted divorce and custody battle with Marie alleging at one point that Eve had been physically abusive towards her. (sighs) She did retract this statement later on, however. It took several attorneys each, lots and lots of money, and a really, really emotionally volatile environment for the boys because the divorce took almost five years to come oh, to a settlement. my God. Wow. Things got even worse when Eve suffered an injury that made him unable to practice and was forced to declare bankruptcy and stiff Marie on alimony and child support. Marie managed to get a job, but with three kids, she had trouble making ends meet. The divorce was finalized in 1985, and even after Eve went back to work, he didn't provide generously for the family. Greg was deeply affected by the dissolution of his parents' marriage and the change in lifestyle, not to mention the terrible fighting that he had witnessed. So Greg really bared the brunt emotionally from this divorce because the two younger kids didn't really remember the fighting as much as they just remembered not growing up with a lot of money. And they thought it was very weird that they were always like scraping and, you know, living paycheck to paycheck with their mom, not able to give them certain, you know, Christmas gifts or stuff like that when they knew their dad was a plastic surgeon. And, you know, growing up in the greater Los Angeles area, they also knew kids that had plastic surgeon parents and they always seemed to have a lot of money, you know? Yeah, of course. Greg grew into a father figure for his brothers and a protector of his single mother Marie. He was kind, hardworking, and handsome, but despite that, was definitely not a ladies' man in the slightest. He was more shy and reserved. Greg graduated high school in 1991 and spent two years at a Palm Desert Community College before spending a summer interning at a lab in Monaco, which is where his dad Eve mostly lived at this point. After that summer, he enrolled in University of California at San Diego. Eventually, middle brother Jerome followed him there as well, and the two moved in together. Unfortunately, Greg was forced to temporarily drop out of school when he couldn't pay the tuition. Now, this was a point of huge resentment in Greg's life at his father because apparently... You know, Marie could not pay for his tuition. He was working throughout school, but even then the bills were mounting and he wanted to go to school full time. And apparently his dad had said, stay in school and I'll cover all the bills. Don't worry, I owe it to you, you know? And then when it actually came time to pay the bills, Eve didn't pay them. Yeah, that's not cool. So Greg and him had a fight at this point that would last for most of the rest of their lives. So it was kind of during this period that Greg dropped out. He went to go work for Rush Legal, which is like legal services. They do a lot of like copying, collating, stuff like that for legal documents. Okay. And the intention was to save up enough money to re-enroll in school. And then, you know, Bertrand was, I think, like 14 or something, 14 or 15. And the boys decided to take him into Tijuana. Okay. And it was on that trip that he met the love of his life, Kristen Rossum. So as excited as Kristen's family was for this union, Greg's brothers were a little less so. First of all, he had picked up this girl in Mexico who had just been kind of wandering around on her own, and then she immediately moved in with him.
0: Yeah, and Tijuana. It's like... In Tijuana. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you're in, like, Cabo at a beautiful hotel. <laughs>
1: No. And and so they were like, okay, it's a little sus that like she was just kind of on her own and where wandering friends, around where Tijuana.
0: Yeah. As a girl as well. Like that's not. She safe. was only 18 years old. Yeah. It's not safe. No. So first of all, they're kind
1: of like, that's kind of weird. It's also like the instant live in girlfriend is also yeah. anybody would be like, hey, maybe you guys should slow down. Maybe you should yeah. live together right away. You just met. And then they were also frustrated because Jerome, the middle brother, lived with Greg and he didn't ask her to pay any rent or do anything around the apartment. So she was living there for months and months before Jerome and their other roommate was like, hey, can you have her at least like share the bills or something, you know? So there was that. And then apparently like when Kristen was drinking, she made some overtures to the other roommate, the one that wasn't Jerome, and even like cried one night and was like, I should be with you and not Greg. And the other guy was like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. (laughs) So there's just like a whole lot of messiness going on here, you know? And like, I can understand that because I think, you know, I know some people that are just born responsible and have been responsible their whole lives, but like most of us, like 18, 19, 20, we don't have our shit together. That's fine. You know, but to be moved in and living with somebody and taking the relationship that seriously at that time, you have to kind of grow up a little faster, you know? Yep. More troubling than any of that, however, was that personal checks and jewelry of Greg's disappeared.
0: The personal checks going missing is terrifying.
1: Yeah. And apparently Greg had some kind of heirloom jewelry from his father's side of the family. Like He had a ring that had the family crest on it that disappeared. So yeah, so that wasn't great. And then Jerome found a vial of white powder in the apartment and he didn't know whose it was. He didn't know whose it was, but he was aware that Kristen was beating a drug problem. So there was an assumption there. Okay. So he brought it up to Greg and he was like, look, I want to kick her out. I think that she's using drugs in our apartment. I think she's stealing from you. Yeah. And I don't feel comfortable with her around. But Greg was like, nope, I am in love with this woman. If she's struggling with her sobriety, I'm going to help her get clean. I'm not going to give up on her when she's going through a dark time. Like... I love you. You're my brother. I appreciate your input. But if you have a problem with Kristen, you need to move out. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, a credit to their relationship was that this was a frustrating period for her brothers, but it was nothing that broke up their relationship. Good. Like, you know, they had a strong enough bond to get through that. Eventually, Greg and Kristen both enrolled back in school with the help of Constance and Ralph, and they moved into their own apartment. Greg went back to UCSD, and Kristen started attending San Diego State University. She got in by omitting that she had ever gone to Redlands University. She said she never did? She said she never did because she didn't want to apply with a 1.67 GPA on her record, you know? I wouldn't either, but crazy that it wasn't like in the system somewhere. I know, I know. On October 25th, 1996, Kristen's 20th birthday, Greg proposed over dinner in Puerto Nuevo, Mexico. Kristen was elated. And despite some of the DeViller's earlier reservations, by now both families were completely over the moon for the young couple. I guess Kristen's parents like thought she was a little young. Greg was like three to four years older than her. And so they were like, you know, she's a little young. I hope they have a long engagement, but they loved Greg and they even loved his family. Apparently by now the DeViller's family, Marie and the other brothers were coming over to the Rossums for Thanksgiving every year. They were already a family unit. Cool. And I also think for the Rossums, like Greg really was like a saving angel for them. Like they couldn't do anything to help Kristen when she was battling her addiction. Yep. And Greg had managed to keep her clean and she was excelling at life. I mean, she was finally doing really great. I mean, she ended up graduating summa cum laude from San Diego State with a distinction in chemistry. Wow. That's wild. That is yet- such a turnaround from where she was, you know? Yeah. In chemistry, though? In chemistry. I know. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So her parents were really excited and they were just very thankful that Greg was a part of her life. Greg also graduated in 1997 with a degree in biology and he went to work for a pharmaceutical research firm. Meanwhile, Kristen began a career as a toxicologist in the medical examiner's office while she was still a student. Kristen didn't reveal her status as a recovering meth addict when she applied and she would not have been hired if she had. The field of toxicology requires being in the presence of lots and lots of illegal substances, including meth in various, you know, forms. So it's not exactly the right fit for somebody who has had drug addiction issues in the past. Yeah, no. And so they said if they had known that straight up, she wouldn't have been hired because it's just it's just too much of a liability, you know. Without knowing this piece of Kristen's past, the lead toxicologist, Dr. Barnhart, became Kristen's mentor. When she graduated and he moved on to working for the Sheriff's Department Crime Lab, he tried to get her hired alongside of him. He was blindsided when her application was rejected due to her past drug use. So I guess, you know, there were some questions about, have you ever done X amount of drugs? Like, have you tried this drug? Have you tried that drug? How many times have you done it? And she was honest on the application. She said that she had done meth more than 30 times. Ooh, yeah. And, and they had also asked if she'd ever been arrested. And she mentioned that she had been arrested, but never charged with possession because she had gotten out. So she she was honest on this application, But she did not get the job because of that reason. And when the sheriff's department informed her mentor, like, hey, I know you really wanted her for the job, but you have to know that we can't hire somebody who has done meth more than 30 times, right? He was completely blown away. He had no idea she'd ever done drugs at all. Okay. But, you know, he was like, clearly you've turned your life around like it's a real shame that you can't like practice in this field, you know, after all you've overcome, I'll still support you in every way I can. And he wasn't going to like blow up her spot at the medical examiner's office. So she ended up actually securing a permanent position in toxicology with the medical examiner's office. So she stayed in that role. She and Greg were also planning their wedding at this time. And there was some drama. So it started with the wedding invitations. The Rossum's you know, mocked up the wedding invitations and sent them out. And apparently Eve's name was on them. It was like the old school, you know, like so-and-so-and-so-and-so present their daughter. Yep. The son of so-and-so-and-so-and-so to be married, you know?
0: I feel like that's just the traditional way. I mean, I just received an
1: invitation like that. Exactly. That's just like the, you know, Marie Post or like... Yep. Emily Post, sorry. Emily Post manners version of this is how you do it, you know, formally. Totally. The wedding invitation thing made Greg really pissed off. And apparently also the Rossums and even Marie were trying to reconcile Greg with his father at this point. Just everyone thought that it would be healthier. Like, yes, they all acknowledged that Eve hadn't been such a great dad, but they thought that it would be nice for Greg on his wedding day to have his father there and he might regret it in the future. But Greg did not want to reconcile with his dad. And it got so bad that the Eve actually flew in from France to attend the wedding and Greg refused to see him. And so Eve had to like decide on the day of the wedding whether he was going to go, he wanted to, to be there for his son, or if his son didn't want to see him, that that would have been
0: really rude to show up, you know? Yeah, but what did he end up doing?
1: He ended up not going. Which I think is super sad, but I I think it's the best to respect the wishes of the bride and groom on their wedding. I think so too. Like, obviously. And, you know, this is all I know from the perspective of the book. Oh, the book that I use today is Poisoned Love by Caitlin Rother. And it was a very well-researched and detailed book. I mean, this book is almost 500 pages. So yeah, there's probably intricacies in their relationship that I can't even speak to. So I don't know, you know, if it's more than just the college tuition or more like than what he thought of, you know, his father abandoning the family when he was in his youth. There could be so much more layered onto this. And in any case, even if there wasn't more layered onto this, it's everyone's right to say, you affect me negatively emotionally and I don't want you there on the biggest day of my life. So the other thing that was causing drama, although this one was unbeknownst to Greg, was that Kristen was having some seriously cold feet. So she confided in her mother that she felt like marrying Greg was potentially a mistake. She said that he had met her at some of the worst time in her entire life and that he reminded her of that time. Like no matter what she accomplished, like she felt like he might always look at her like the lost girl she was in Tijuana. Was he though? Not from what I have heard. I think that he was really protective and he really valued her sobriety and helping her. And I think that if somebody is always looking at you, like, I have to protect you, I have to fix you, I have to save you, I have to help you, it can get a little cloying, you know? Yeah. He definitely always had her best interest at heart.
0: Yeah, and she may have needed that without knowing.
1: Exactly. So... She said that to her mother and her mother was like, I know, but we've made it this far. And, you know, the wedding's happening. And if you really, really don't want to get married, of course, we'll call it off. But like, Greg is so good for you. And he's so kind. And I know you love him deep down and everybody gets cold feet. It's just totally normal. It's natural. And I think that she kind of felt forced to go through with it. And from her mother's perspective, I think she was also terrified that without Greg's presence in Kristen's life, Kristen would spin out again. Okay. But I mean, I was talking about this with Nathaniel, and he's like, I think we really need to normalize like trusting our gut instincts and not just being like, oh, it's pre wedding jitters, oh, it's cold flea. Like everybody has this. It's like if somebody's telling you they're feeling something deeply, then you have to say,
0: okay, let's like walk down the path of what it would look like to actually leave, you know? Yeah, and I think that's probably happening more often, but this was the 90s and I feel like she was troubled to her parents and this guy was about to take care of her. I don't know. Yes. I feel like I can see it from the parents' perspective of being like, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Like, you know, it's, especially if she's had a tumultuous adolescence Like adolescence, as well. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, she also talked to her friend, Melissa Prager and she told Melissa that she wasn't sure if she was deeply in love with Greg the way you're supposed to be with somebody you're getting married to, and that she felt pressure from Greg and her parents to marry him because he had saved her, you know, at least if from their perspective, right? Okay, so Melissa didn't believe that Kristen should go through with the wedding, speaking of somebody who's like, listen to that gut feeling and run, so much so that Kristen asked Melissa to be her maid of honor And Melissa turned it down because she didn't believe that Kristen should be getting married.
0: To him or getting married in general?
1: She didn't think at that point she should be getting married to anyone. Okay. But certainly not if it was somebody that she was just marrying because she felt like she owed
0: them for helping her get clean, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's not a reason to marry someone. Despite all of
1: this, Kristen and Greg did get married on June 5th, 1999 when Kristen was 22 and Greg 25. Greg professed his love for his bride in a toast at the wedding saying, Kristen is the most wonderful person I've ever met. She's incredible in so many ways in everything that she does. She's a perfectionist. She's intelligent. She's so kind and caring and sharing. I just
0: can't wait to spend the
1: rest of my life with her.
0: Dude, could you imagine saying that when you're 22? No, no. I mean, and I know people who get married young and are happy absolutely forever who have who have gotten married in high school like right out of high school and we're together forever I just can't imagine like my who I was or who you were like it's just oh my god to think about
1: I did not have my shit together I did not have my shit together even remotely I I don't even think I loved myself let alone being able to fully totally love somebody else at that point you know So for a little while, at least, Kristen's fears seemed to dissipate and the two enjoyed a happy honeymoon period after a literal honeymoon at Whistler in Vancouver. They discussed having children right away with Kristen telling her mom that she was off birth control and whatever happened, happened. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. And Greg actually already picked the name Isabel Marie if they had a girl. But the marital bliss did not last long. By January of 2000, Kristen began to complain to her mother that Greg had become clingy and controlling since they wed and that she was beginning to resent it. Later, some of Kristen's emails would show that she was sending flirty and sexual messages to at least two other men she knew from school and work. Uh Uh-oh. So this is kind of like... An infidelity chicken and the egg situation. Like, is he getting a little bit suspicious? And so she's reading that as clingy and controlling because she is like sending messages out and acting available and potentially cheating.
0: Yeah. Or
1: is he being clingy and controlling and it's driving her pushing to her away? Want, pushing her away. Exactly. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. But it's something is going on here. In any case, in early March of 2000, a handsome athletic Australian toxicologist named Michael Robertson began to work at the medical examiner's office. And he got the job as the lab manager. So he's essentially Kristen's boss. And woo, baby, did sparks fly. Kristen later wrote in her journal, that as a teenager she had a fantasy about meeting the one that she would just know and it would be love at first sight which was something that hadn't happened necessarily with Greg she felt safe with him but not necessarily like swept off her feet she said this was if not you're the one moment, it was pretty darn close. She said upon looking at Michael Robertson for the first time, her knees immediately went to jelly and her stomach filled up with butterflies.
0: That's really cute.
1: Yeah. And I can get it too. This
0: guy is cute.
1: He looks like a more rugged version of Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay. (laughs) With an Australian accent and he's super smart. He has a PhD in forensic toxicology. Plus... He's her boss, so if you like authority figures, there's always that, you know? For sure. But again, Andy, ma'am,
0: ma'am, you are married. And he's your boss.
1: (laughs) And he's your boss, and you're writing in your diary about getting butterflies. Yeah. Oof. Chill out. So, Michael was married as well, but that didn't stop the two from almost immediately starting a hot and heavy love affair. No. Within one month of Michael starting, it was apparent to other employees that the two were definitely doing it. The other toxicologists began to feel uncomfortable as Kristen and Michael stood way too close together. They brushed up against each other and they flirted shamelessly.
0: Yeah, the lab isn't really a place to be doing that.
1: No. And apparently when Kristen got her permanent position... They moved her to a desk that was like literally right next to Michael's office so he could see her all the time. And so she was like always going into his office and they were closing the door or he was coming out and like being really obvious. And all the other toxicologists are like, this is really inappropriate because also she was definitely the youngest one. I mean, she's fresh out of her bachelor's education, you know, and he is the senior lab manager. Now, being a cheating dirtbag was nothing new to Michael. He had been having an affair with at least one other woman before he and his wife, Nicole, had moved to San Diego.
0: Ugh. Did he move her all the way from Australia, too?
1: So I guess they had lived in Pennsylvania before moving to San Diego. So yeah, they found evidence of love letters and emails. And it did appear that Michael cut off the relationship when he began dating Kristen, again, behind his wife's back. Michael appeared to take the relationship with Kristen pretty seriously. I mean, as seriously as you can for your side piece. I <laughs> roll. By May, only two months since meeting, Michael and Kristen were already declaring their love for one another. Stop it right now. Like... Teenagers. They're both married. Both married. As Kristen and Greg's first wedding anniversary approached in June, Kristen told her brother Brent that she wished she had listened to her gut and not gone through the wedding. Kristen also confided in her friend Melissa that she was having an affair and that she was in love for the first time ever. Michael felt the same way. He repeatedly told her that he had never experienced love and passion like theirs. And they exchanged greeting cards, letters, lots and lots of emails. And they were just all versions of gushing love and passion statements that use the words like forever, destiny, fate, passion, and true love to describe their union.
0: Unreal. They're like not single.
1: I think that at this point, they start discussing maybe trying to leave their Yeah, I think that might be a good idea. Yeah, before we get to this stage. So yeah, they discussed leaving their spouses, getting married, having kids, even growing old together. They played this very obnoxious game that's going to make you barf in your mouth a little bit. It was called Schmilly. Schmilly stood for see how much I love you. And they would try to like leave that note for each other like everywhere they went to surprise each other like on a post-it note or like if like the bathroom mirror is fogged up you'd write it in the condensation
0: yeah so ridiculous also these are just like you can just like do this like in your relationship with your person who you're like with and not like make up some like name for it called schmilly and also like not be married (laughs) to someone else
1: yeah yeah Agreed. Imagine if all of this effort went towards repairing their actual marriages.
0: Yeah. And also imagine if you're like the other spouse and you just like all of a sudden like your bathroom window like steams up and it says like, I love you so much. And you're like, what the fuck?
1: So unfortunately for Greg, for a lot of reasons, but in this certain situation, unfortunately for Greg, that he found one of these love letters. There you go. And quite understandably lost it. So he even called Michael and Nicole at this point figures out what's going on because he
0: gets a call from an angry Greg in the middle of the night at their house. Yeah, an angry husband. Come on, an angry husband. You left your lawnmower over there or something, or someone borrowed it. Yeah, he tried to like play it it off
1: like you know it's an employee of mine. It's just a jealous husband. But Nicole had already been through this with him, so and women are smart. Yeah, so she's like, (laughs) "Uh, I don't know. I think you're doing it again, sir. You know, and so basically Greg unloaded on him. And he's like, you stay away from my wife. Like, I know something's going on and and like step back, step off. But I mean, what are they supposed to do? They work together, you know?
0: Yeah. But also, is that like a complete no-no in the HR department?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely comes to it where Greg gets to a point where he's like, you got to, you know, leave this job or at least convince me you're not having an affair anymore or else I'm going to tell somebody at your job, you know? Yeah. For sure. On September 21st, 2001, Kristen took a trip to Tijuana to get prescription drugs that you can't easily get in the United States. She ended up getting a highly addictive muscle relaxant, as well as a drug that's called Clobenzorox in the United States, which is apparently a strong diet pill that metabolizes like amphetamines or speed. Ooh. Yeah. So or the a drug mask. literature. <laughs> Yeah, the drug literature specifically stated that this drug was not intended for people who are overcoming drug or alcohol dependencies. Yeah, because they get addicted to that. Exactly. So while she's not technically back using meth, this is definitely a gateway drug. It's a very slippery slope. Yeah. The next month, Michael and Kristen attended a work conference where it became obvious to all that they were a couple. They were even confronted by their office administrator, but they denied the affair. While at the conference, Michael and Kristen attended a talk on fentanyl taught by an old colleague of Michael's named Dan Anderson. So I'm going to give you guys a little overview on fentanyl from Caitlin Rother's book, Poisoned Love. And I also want to give you a trigger warning. I know that I know personally, because I've talked to some of our listeners, that they have experienced a loved one's passing from fentanyl poisoning or overdosing. So we will be talking about fentanyl in this episode if that is a trigger for you. And if you don't know, which I actually didn't know all of this about fentanyl, fentanyl is a short-acting narcotic painkiller about 100 times more powerful than morphine. It's in the same opiate family as heroin, morphine, and all. Fentanyl acts on the central nervous system and in excessive doses can render users unconscious and can cause seizures, comas, severe breathing problems, nausea, and vomiting. Unavailable to the general public, the fast-acting opiate is often injected as an anesthetic during surgery or for short procedures where the patient needs to be out for only a brief amount of time, such as wisdom teeth removal. The drug is so fast acting that people who have purposely or accidentally overdosed on it have been found with syringes in their arms, in their hands, or lying next to their bodies because it happened so fast. Yep. In October 2002, 117 people were killed when Russian security police used the drug in a gaseous form to end a hostage standoff. Oh my God. The fentanyl skin patch, similar to the nicotine patch for people trying to quit smoking, is most often used to treat chronic pain in severe cancer patients. Another form of administration is in the berry flavored lollipop used for flare-ups and cancer pain and also as a sedative for children who are about to undergo surgery. So Dan gave his talk about how fentanyl poisoning can sometimes go overlooked in deaths because they very rarely tested for it in autopsies unless there is an obvious connection. Okay. Dan was surprised to see Michael with Kristen, mostly because he had already heard rumors about the affair, but he had actually defended Michael, saying that his friend and colleague would never jeopardize his career and marriage that way. So Dan had actually been socially friends with Nicole as well, so he knows you know, Michael's wife. He knows them
0: as what he thought was a happy couple. And yeah, he thought this guy was a stand up guy. It's crazy when people that you think have the same like ethical stance as you do not.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. Like he's like, we are the same. We have like the same level of education. We're in the same field. You know, we both love our wives. And then you find out like they are on a totally different playing field. And that's what happened here. So, you know, Dan seemed really uncomfortable when Michael and Kristen approached him later. So Michael tried to talk to him privately and he explained that he and Nicole were separated, which was mostly true. So they were separated. They were living apart at this point. They weren't legally separated, I don't think. They were going to counseling and Nicole 100% believed that the counseling was for reconciliation. Okay. She didn't know that there was another person. She had her suspicions, of course, but she didn't know for sure that this guy was... Her husband is planning a life with somebody else. She thought they were trying to recover from infidelity, you know? So he tells Dan Anderson, we're totally separated and I'm actually moving on with Kristen and she's a great person and you'd actually really like her if you would give her a chance. And Dan was just totally disgusted and he told Michael so... He was like, I really like Nicole. Like, have you told Nicole? And he's like, no, she doesn't know I'm dating somebody. And he's like, well, you have to tell her, obviously. I don't care whether you're separated or not. And also, how dumb are you? This is your subordinate at work. This is one of your employees. Like, this is career suicide. You are so dumb for doing this. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Dan was like, I bid you adieu, sir. And he assumed that that was like the end of it. Okay. But then later, Kristen approached him. Of course. And she was like, you know, both me and Michael just value your opinion so much. And we just really want your approval. And Dan didn't even know this girl. So he's like, your husband doesn't know what's going on. His wife doesn't know what's going on. I am never going to approve of this. I don't even really know you. I don't want to know you. Like, let's not do this here. And they're at the conference. They're at like, I a was mixer. just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And she starts crying. And she says to him, like in front of other people, but we just value you as a toxicologist. He's like, I don't know what this has to do with anything. And he said that like she wouldn't let it go. And he was like trying to walk away from her and she was like following him and making a scene. And he finally was so embarrassed with the whole thing that he just left the entire conference for the night.
0: my God.
1: Chill. Yeah. So that was a whole thing. Only a week later, Kristen attended a wedding with her husband, Greg, and everyone there actually thought that they seemed totally normal and happy. The only two weird things about the wedding <laughs> weekend. <laughs> two weird things, though. There's two weird things, though. One was that when they were sitting there, I guess Jerome was at their table because it was a like a family friend. And... Greg brought something up about like having kids. Like, you know, when you're at a wedding and you start talking about the future and like where you're going with your life too. And he's like, yeah, you know, like we're going to be like having kids again soon. And I guess like Kristen got really short with him and was like, I'm not ready for kids. We're not having kids anytime soon. And that was just like a surprising departure because Jerome knew that like, you know, only a year or so before, they had been talking about it very happily. Like she was like off birth control. They Uh were picking up baby names. And so he noticed that it was just a she was like really different and her attitude seemed very changed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then later they were watching a movie and in the movie, one of the characters like attempts suicide or they discuss the best way to die or something. And one of the other people who was watching the movie was an EMT. And so the guy who was an EMT and Kristen started, you know, from a medical perspective, arguing about what the best way to die was and the other guy said carbon monoxide poisoning. And Kristen's like, oh, no, no, no. The best way to die would be to take a certain combination of drugs that would ensure an entirely painless death. Huh. So everyone was like, I bet they're just talking shit. But then later on, everyone recalled that funny statement. On Sunday, November 5th, Michael discovered a bindle of white powder in Kristen's desk. Retro. Right, Yes, so he had noticed changes in her behavior over the last several weeks and he had become suspicious that
0: she was using again. Obviously she had disclosed that to him because they were lovers. Yeah, but I thought she wanted like someone who didn't know that about her. I think she didn't want, yeah, I don't know. But I mean, she sounds like flipsy flopsy. I mean, I think we she all know is someone very, who very is like this. Yeah, she's very flipsy flopsy for sure. So basically
1: she had revealed to him which is another problem in their relationship because that's something that would have been a fireable offense. And he's obviously keeping her secret. Yeah. And this is just bad all around. I mean, she has drugs at work. Yeah. and not okay. She's sleeping with the boss. Exactly. She's married. This is all over a disaster. And if another employee finds out about her drug use and it comes to light that he knew about it and more so didn't reveal it to anyone because of the sexual affair, then he's in big trouble, you know? So he's like, I really need to talk to you the next day on the morning of Monday, November 6, 2001, Kristen made a series of quick calls to a man named Armando Garcia in Tijuana. Oh, no. Yes, who was believed to be her drug dealer.
0: Oh, Armando. Then
1: at 7.42 in the morning, she called in sick for Greg. So she called Greg's voicemail at work. And later she would say why she called his number was because it was a shared voicemail. And so she assumed that the other person would be checking the messages for some reason. She didn't call the main number. And and this comes up later on. We don't know exactly why she did this other than avoiding detection of them knowing that he wasn't coming to work for a little while. We don't know. So she called and she said that Greg hadn't been feeling well. He had been feeling sick the entire day before and that on Monday morning, he couldn't get out of bed so that she was going to take care of him and that hopefully he'd be returning to work the next day. Mm -hmm. Did he have a
0: combination of pills? Potentially. Yes. Yes.
1: So Kristen got to work somewhere between eight and eight thirty in the morning and her coworkers noticed that she looked tired, extremely upset. And though she hadn't slept, Uh-oh. she went into Michael's office and colleagues noticed that the couple looked tense. And at one point, Kristen began crying. Then throughout the day, Kristen drove back and forth from work to her apartment, telling people that she was checking on her sick husband. She left for work for good that day at 2.30 p.m. with Michael following close behind. The two did end up meeting at a place they called the Willows, which is somewhere they frequently went to, you know, kind of make out, talk, anything in private. Then at 9.22 p.m. that night, Kristen called 911 crying. She told the dispatcher that her 26-year-old husband, Greg, was in bed, cold,
0: not responsive, and not breathing. 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you're among them, know you're not alone and that there's a solution you can trust to deliver results.
1: Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol, with many users raving that the supplement not only transformed their hair, but restored their confidence too.
0: Visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for personalized product recommendations that are unique to your hair's needs.
1: Nutrafol offers two targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life.
0: Healthier hair growth takes time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months.
1: In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. More than 1,500 top doctors recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair.
0: You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code LOVEMURDER to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it is only available to U.S. customers for a limited time.
1: Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code LOVEMURDER.
0: Good health starts with good habits. Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials you need to care for your mouth. The Quip electric toothbrush is loved
1: by over 7 million mouths and has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended 2-minute clean. A lightweight and sleek design for adults and kids with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down. A multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. Reusable handles in a range of sleek metal hues, including best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors sure
0: to make a pop on your bathroom counter. On top of your brushing, you can upgrade your Quip with a new smart motor to track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app earn amazing rewards like free refills, products, target gift cards, and more. Beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine,
1: starting with the anti-cavity toothpaste in mint or watermelon that helps prevent
0: cavities, and also the refillable gum that's sugar-free, has long-lasting mint flavor, and comes with a dispenser. In addition to brush heads, Quip also delivers fresh floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, and gum refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of
1: in-store shopping. With stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just
0: $25, you won't be paying through the teeth for better oral health. If you go to getquip.com slash lovemurder right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash lovemurder spelled G-E-T- Quip.com dot slash lovemurder. Quit the good habits company.
1: Andy, you know what time of year it is. The decorations are getting unpacked.
0: The timeless music is starting and we're getting ready for the holidays over here. Of course you are. And for our listeners, it's never too early to start gift shopping for the holidays, especially because today you can save big on a gift they'll use every day, Raycon Wireless Earbuds. These wireless earbuds are so clutch for everyday life.
1: My favorite thing is using them to listen to audiobooks for the show while I'm
0: hiking. Yep, they're great for working from home, cooking, cleaning, you name it. With seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, you can start listening right away
1: and keep listening for hours. The audio quality is amazing, comparable
0: to what you get with other premium brands, except Raycon starts at half the price. The new Everyday Earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. Pure mode is for podcast listening, blues, instrumental, etc. Balanced mode for podcast listening, rock, heavy rock, and metal. And bass mode for hip-hop, EDM, reggae, etc. Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. So this holiday season, get them something they can use for calls or music, for work or play, at home or on the go, or pick up a pair for yourself. Trust me, you're going to use them every day.
1: Go to buyraycon.com slash lovemurder today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order.
0: But hurry, this offer is only available for a limited time only. And you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash lovemurder to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash lovemurder.
1: The dispatcher told Kristen to pull Greg off the bed and lay him flat on his back on the floor so she could begin CPR. The dispatcher counted down with Kristen and walked her through CPR attempts. When the paramedics arrived, only five minutes later, they immediately rushed Greg to the hospital. Yeah, so they got there and they were like, she hasn't been able to revive him. This does not look good. Let's get him to the hospital right away. Okay, and he's still alive at this point? It's not looking good. Let's just say that. The police found no evidence of forced entry, a struggle, or a suicide note. They did find laying out a notebook that ended up being Kristen's journal. The officer on the scene summarized its contents by saying that Kristen felt her marriage had been a mistake, that she had gotten married too young, that she was self-conscious about her looks and that she wanted to separate from Greg. Kristen said that she had been discussing a separation from Greg on Saturday with him and on Sunday. So they had been kind of fighting about it all weekend. Okay. And that Greg had told her that he couldn't live without her and had taken some pills to sleep on Sunday night. She said also that they had gone out to dinner with her parents earlier that weekend and that he had been acting erratically when they went out to dinner as well.
0: Did they concur?
1: They didn't initially and then later on they did. So her dad said in his first interview with the police, like, Greg was totally normal. They seemed fine. I don't know what happened. And then later on, he kind of changed his tune. Okay. So she said that he was feeling sick Monday morning, so she called in for him and checked on him several times during the day. Kristen claimed that she woke him up at lunch and made him eat soup at 12.30 p.m., at which time Greg told her that he had taken some of her old oxycodone and clonazepam. So I guess at some point she had these drugs on her. She had gotten them in Tijuana. Okay, And Greg found them and she said that Greg had told her that he had disposed of them for her because he didn't want her to have drugs around, you know? Okay. And so she said that he revealed that he had not actually disposed of the drugs and in fact had taken them that morning. Hmm. And she said that he did kind of slur a little bit, but for the most part, you know, he was up, he was eating soup, It didn't seem like anything was really dangerous at that moment. That's why she didn't call 911. Okay. But this is all just her story. This is all just her story. So she let him return to bed and she went back to work. She says that she returned to the house at 5 p.m. where she gave him a kiss and she said he was still sleeping. He was warm and breathing. She then ate some leftovers for dinner and went shopping to a mall to get a present for her cousin's upcoming wedding. At 8 p.m., she returned home. She said that Greg was still sleeping and she heard him breathing. Kristen then took a long bath and shower and then climbed into bed where she found Greg cold, unresponsive, and not breathing. She said she immediately called 911. When the dispatcher told her to pull Greg's body from the bed, she discovered that he had been lying in a bed of rose petals and he had been clutching their wedding photo. Were the rose petals still in the bed? Yeah. So when she pulled him off, they remained in the bed and some of them fell to the floor. Okay. And then the the picture also fell to the floor and it looked like she had propped it up like by the bedside. So her feeling was that he had committed suicide somehow because that weekend he had told her that he wouldn't live without her. And that she apparently really liked roses. And so it was some sort of sentimental suicide attempt. Dark. Yeah. So later an investigator from the medical examiner's office would determine that the rose petals were fresh, but Kristen claimed that she had no idea where they had come from. So the medical examiner determined that they had been bought very soon before this incident. So most likely that day or the day before, but Reportedly, he was sick in bed all day. So where did yeah, the rose petals whom? come from? Yes, exactly. Sadly, Greg was declared dead fairly soon after he arrived at the hospital. He had been dead when they had arrived. And there would have been no amount of resuscitation attempts that would have brought him back, unfortunately. He was also only six days away from his 27th birthday. Eh. I know he was a baby and so promising. All of his coworkers loved him. His brothers looked up to him. I mean, he was just a wonderful human being. Michael accompanied Kristen to the hospital, which when Greg's mother and brothers arrived- Excuse me? Yeah. Awful news. They're met with their dead brother and son's wife, who is there with her boss and love interest. I mean, they said their body language was way more than what a boss and employee would be. It just, the whole thing struck them as extremely bizarre. No shame, no shame at all. The police continued to investigate the scene. The rose petals were obviously weird. Plus there were some other inconsistencies in Kristen's story. One example being the lividity present on Greg's body showed that he had been dead for longer than Kristen had indicated. Uh So why hadn't she called 911 earlier? if Greg had committed suicide by overdose, where were the pill bottles? You know, there was no pill bottles. There was no sign of anything that he had injected. Absolutely nothing. So it's clear that Greg's death was due to an overdose or some sort of mixing of medication. And Michael, who is the lead toxicologist at the medical examiner's office, who has not revealed that he was having an affair with the dead man's wife, is like, don't worry, we're going to go to an outside lab for this because it's Kristen's husband. So he's saying it's because it's related to somebody who works there, right? Which is good, but not before he kind of tells everybody. But we all know it's a suicide. So he's kind of like getting his story out there while covering his ass. Meanwhile, the other toxicologists are not buying it because they know about the hanky-panky. They don't know no, but they're pretty darn sure Yeah, And so they were actually a little scared. They were like, okay, thank God they're sending this to a different county's lab and having another medical examiner's office cover this one because we think that there might be foul play here. Meanwhile, the DeVillers family was starting to be suspicious as well. Kristen seemed determined to get Greg cremated as soon as possible, not even wanting to wait for Eve to get there from France. Like essentially they were like, I think he'd really like
0: to see his son before we cremate him. Yeah, but aren't they also going to do a toxicology report?
1: Yes. And they also did uh, donate some of his organs too. Okay, So there's a whole thing going on here, but Kristen seemed like she was rushing the process a little bit. Jerome was especially skeptical of Kristen. He knew his brother was not suicidal and never, ever touched drugs. He was the type of guy who didn't even like to take an Advil when he had a headache. You know, those type of people. Yeah, come on. Yeah. And his aversion to drugs got even more intense when he got involved with Kristen because he didn't want drugs to be a part of their lives in their homes, around at all. So Jerome refused to believe anything that Kristen was saying. She was like, like he was basically like, please tell me what actually happened here. Cause it doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. And she's like, we were fighting and things were bad. And I told him I wanted to leave. And he's like, I'm not going to live without you. And then
0: apparently he took some old pills of mine. And here we are. Here we are. He just laid out all these rose petals and was clutching onto our wedding photo. Yeah. So do you Imagine like- being his family. It was just, they were like,
1: also, that's not Greg. Everyone interviewed in this scenario was like, he was not an overly sentimental guy. Like he was a kind, giving, generous guy, but he wasn't like somebody that would go like cheesy above board on like anniversaries or anything, you know? Like he was more of like, his love was like in service to the relationship, not like these weird, dramatic, over the top. Yeah. Yeah. So Jerome is like, I am not going to look the other way and I'm not going to lay down and take this. And he starts calling the medical examiner's office. He starts calling the police. He's calling the San Diego police. He's like, you have to investigate this. Something is wrong here. And like I said, they talk to a lot of Greg's coworkers and friends and find out like he's not sentimental like that. He is not suicidal. He's never would ever take any mystery drugs. That's just not who he is. Yeah. So they decide to turn their attention to the grieving widow. And they ended up uncovering the extramarital affair pretty darn fast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they did a good job covering their tracks. No, they were very obvious. And apparently only one week after Greg died, another toxicologist in the lab named Kathy Ham had been using the phone in Michael's office. And she found a letter that Michael had written to Kristen and I guess never gave her because it was still in his desk. And it just gave away everything. Oh, Here no. is the contents of the letter from Poison Love. Michael had written the letter on Thursday night, October 26th, so really close to when Greg ended up dying, and about two weeks after he and Kristen had gone to the conference together, he said he was missing her. He told her how much he loved her and felt loved by her, and how he was looking forward to the day he could display his affection more publicly. He laid out the details of how they'd met eight months earlier. Perhaps it was comforting to put them on paper as he sat at his desk fantasizing about the day they would finally be together. But for Ham, it only confirmed what she'd felt in her gut all along. You and I played out what some may call fate, others destiny, he wrote. Even though they were both married, Michael said, he was still excited about the prospect of spending the rest of his life with her. He'd never felt this way about anyone before. So why did you get married? Ugh. Then he began to get maudlin. He told himself that she was progressing, but now that he was alone, it was getting harder and harder to wait for her to leave Greg. Now as I sit here, time slows down, he wrote. The days pass and another night drags on and I tell myself it's okay, not many to go now. Then days become weeks and weeks-months. Michael said he felt himself building emotional barriers to protect himself and his pride, frustrated that their time together was spent with her watching the clock for fear of letting Greg down. He felt most vulnerable at times like her birthday when she was at Greg's side, not his. Wow. Wow. they married. Wow. Both of these people. And now he was thinking about the holidays and he was still unsure whether she would actually leave her husband by then. So this gives, obviously, the police some motive. Michael was putting pressure on her to end the relationship. Yeah. Then the toxicology results come back, and it showed that while Greg did have clonazepam and oxycodone in his system, what had actually killed him was an exceptionally large dose of fentanyl. Stop. Yep. Oh, and lo and behold, fentanyl patches and some other drugs, including some meth, were discovered to be missing from the drug safe at the medical examiner's office. You shut your mouth. She stole them from there. Mm -hmm. So they've got motive and means. Who discovered that they were missing? So they went back through the back catalog and they found out that those drugs were missing. However... They kind of had a loosey-goosey sign-in, sign-out system. So they could not say definitively that she took them.
0: Yeah, flopsies. Because apparently everybody Lips in the, the medical... Ex- loves that. Yes.
1: So yeah, everyone in the medical examiner's office had a pass that you could get into this room to, to access the drugs to. Unreal. So, you know, of course, later her defense can say... Anybody in that medical examiner's office could have done it. Even Greg himself, you know, he came to work occasionally with Kristen. He could have taken her key card and gotten in there himself. Wow. Yeah. So the cops re Kristen, and she claimed that Greg had discovered a letter that proved her affair with Michael, and the two had fought, with Greg threatening to go to her superiors at the medical examiner's office to reveal not only her affair, but also her relapse drug use. Okay. If she didn't willingly leave her job and Michael. So he's basically like, you quit and find a new job and stop your affair. Nobody needs to know about this, you know? Yeah. Kristen admitted to the police that she had relapsed, which they said was obvious given her condition at the time that they interviewed her. She was extremely thin and she was covered with scabs. Ooh, yeah. And she also said that she and Michael had spoken about the drug use but also the potential of Greg exposing their affair that day. So when they went to talk at the Willows, it was about him being unhappy that he had just, allegedly just found out about her continued drug use. And also that Greg was threatening to expose them. Still, Kristen denied that she had anything to do with Greg's death. She called it a conspiracy theory of Jerome's and said that Greg's family just could not accept that he actually committed suicide, even though that was the case. And so they were starting a smear campaign on her just because they couldn't deal with their loved one's death.
0: Yeah. So her, his family, who's known him for 27 years, doesn't know as much as someone who has known him for two years who's cheating on him and has a drug issue. Precisely. Mm-hmm. At that
1: point, the police ask for the journal that they know was at the scene because they hadn't taken it at that point. They had noticed it. They had logged it, but they hadn't taken it because they didn't know what they were dealing with or if it was a homicide at that point. So Kristen says, that's fine. They can totally take the journal. And at this point, the lead investigator was apparently like, why don't we you know, go in my car together and I'll take you home and I'll grab the journal and come back. And she's like, no, my car's here. But at this point, they were worried that she was going to just like take off in her car. Yeah. So the investigator's like, why don't you drive? I'll come with you and somebody will follow me in a police car. My partner will, you know, and then they can take me home. And the investigator later was like, that was a huge mistake. I didn't think she was high on drugs, but I don't know what was going on. But apparently she was driving so bad to the point
0: where the investigator was like, I was legitimately concerned for my life. Yeah, no, so scary. Bad drivers are so scary.
1: So the police also interviewed Michael and he did admit to the affair and the knowledge that Kristen had resumed her drug habit. But he said he had only found out about the drugs the day before Greg's death, that time that he was in her desk and he found it literally the night before. That's what he says. He told investigators that he believed that the suicide attempt was intended to be a cry for help that's what he thinks that Greg didn't actually mean to commit suicide that he was doing anything he could to get Kristen's attention and to rebuild the relationship but he didn't know how much drugs to take and he took too many and ended up dying mm-hmm. so the investigators do not believe the suicide angle like they they don't believe it seems like it's in his character to take these drugs nobody thinks that you know he was suicidal and the whole setup with the rose petals and the wedding photo is is just so beyond. And if you're going to go to that extreme, wouldn't you also leave a note? Wouldn't you say, I loved you so much that I couldn't live without you? Like I had to end things. You'd want that last, if you're killing yourself because somebody's leaving you, you want to get it in. You want to get that dig in, you know? So they just they just could not believe that, that that was like what somebody would do. They would stage an entire scene and not like write a couple lines. So they decide to get a prosecutor from the DA's office involved extremely early. So there's like, even at the beginning of this investigation, they already pull an ADA in because they're like, this might be hard to prove and we want to know legally what we have to do every step of the way to make this stick, you know? It was very well handled, I
0: think, this whole case for the most part. It seems like even the detective and police work at the beginning was solid.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, especially because I'm I'm pretty sure that A, you know, Kristen had not really had repercussions for the things that she had done in the past, which we kind of touched on. But also B, I think that she thought working in the medical examiner's office and what she knew, and also, you know, her boss, who's the head toxicologist, and then he dies of something that is all about toxicology. Yeah. That this was going to be smooth sailing, that this was going to be like, she, she's in the club, you know, so it's going to just boop, go away. So the fact that they were like all over this, even though she's technically, you know, part of law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Which I is impressive. I'm really glad that they looked into this so immediately. So Deputy DA Dan Goldstein took the case and he immediately noted that something was off with Kristen's 911 call. She still had the phone at her face when she was allegedly doing CPR. Goldstein was a former EMT. So he knew that she wouldn't be able to be holding the phone or even like having it in the crook of her shoulder. while actually administering CPR. Okay. So he's like, she wasn't doing that. So that's fishy right away that jumped out of course. at us. In early December, both Kristen and Michael were fired from the medical examiners office. Kristen's termination was due to her drug use and Michael's because of his inappropriate relationship with Kristen and failure to report her drug use. When office personnel cleared out their desks after the terminations, they found in Kristen's drawer muscle relaxants prescriptions in Spanish for more muscle relaxants and diet pills, as well as dried rose petals and love notes from Michael. In Michael's desk, they found Dan Anderson's case study on deaths involving
0: fentanyl patches. Oh my God. Hmm? Wow, guys. Wow. Well, I don't think they expected that
1: because they, it was basically one of those situations where you get fired and they don't even give them a chance to clean out your desk. They're like, somebody will send it to you. Bye. Unreal. Security's there to escort you out of the building. On January 4th, 2001, investigators searched Kristen's apartment and they found the place a terrible mess and Kristen high on meth. So they confiscated the drugs and the drug paraphernalia, as well as another diary, computers, and Kristen's Palm Pilot.
0: It's all falling apart, honey. Yeah.
1: And Kristen was arrested for possession and taken to jail, but her parents quickly bailed her out. The police also searched the home that Michael and Nicole had been living in, as well as Michael's new bachelor apartment where he'd been staying since the separation. And Nicole was very
0: understandably frustrated at the invasive search. I know I was going to say poor Nicole, but like also I'd be like, have at it. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, turn the
1: place upside down. Find whatever you can against that asshole. But yeah, like, she was just like, at wit's end. She was just like, I can't believe I'm going through this. Now, like, after everything kn- else. On top of everything else, like, at this point, she still believed that they were working towards reconciliation. And now the police are in her home because his secret girlfriend might have killed her husband and he might have had a very large part in it.
0: Ugh. Disgusting.
1: Yeah. And she says, oh, guys, you know, this is not the first time he's been a total scumbag. We actually were forced to move to San Diego after we had a foursome with another young couple in Pennsylvania. And the woman in the couple and Michael began their own secret affair. Yep. This is why swinging can be dangerous.
0: Swinging can be real dangerous.
1: Uh-huh. Nicole had been angry. Especially when the couple, the other couple, ended up following them to the West Coast, settling in nearby Encinitas. Wow. This guy is so shady. (sighs) Encinitas is so close. That was like the the woman he was talking about, like talking to before he met Kristen. So that affair had been continuing to go on (sighs) until he found a new affair partner. At Michael's apartment, they found a briefcase just chock full of cards, love letters, and trinkets from his affair with Kristen. Here are some of the things they found in the briefcase, according to Poison Love. Oh, God. They found a plastic box of little white scrolls of paper, each inscribed with a message such as, I will be your servant for one day. I will wash all of the dinner dishes. I will make an ice cream sundae and feed it to you. Are these like and coupons? Aunts? Yeah, they're like they're like scroll like, like coupons. the
0: coupons that you make your parents on like Mother's and Father's Day when you're like eight. When you're like, I promise you one breakfast in bed. I promise you I wash your car. Yes,
1: yes, exactly. The next one was I will wash your hair. It also contained an unopened box of Kama Sutra love oils flavored with chocolate mint, cherry almond, raspberry kiss, and vanilla cream, a small bag labeled French countryside seed mix, and seven coupons. So the scrolls must have been different than the coupons. Oh God. That were each redeemable for a romantic interlude, a stroll under the stars, a massage, breakfast in bed, a candlelight champagne bubble bath, a weekend getaway, <laughs> or a favorite meal. Babe. These guys were so full cheese. I've never been this full cheese with anyone.
0: It's surprising that they had enough time to plan a murder when they were so busy making coupons. You know, I think that's like really... They should have really just like leaned in if
1: Etsy was around and become like professional romantic coupon makers instead of killing people. There was also a bunch of romantic souvenirs from their conference trip, including airline ticket stubs, a business card from an Italian restaurant, and a photo of them sitting at a banquet table at the conference. And
0: them being relentlessly rejected by one of their business by Danny Anderson, <laughs>
1: yeah. There was a miniature hardbook cover of love poems, as well as a handful of candy Valentine's Day hearts inscribed with husband and wife, always and forever, I the wed, and Mr. and Mrs. What? As well as a sex manual titled 52 Invitations to Great Sex. Yep. In the title, three R's. Kristen had written a note in the sex manual that promised they would enjoy a lifetime of passion together. And that's not all, Andy. Oh, God, how? Is there more? <laughs> There's more. One of the cards Kristen gave Michael featured an elderly couple dancing barefoot on the beach. Inside, her handwritten message asked him to save her a dance in 50 years. My dance card is filled with your name for the rest of my life, she wrote.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Not to be outdone, Michael gave Kristen a card with two small children dressed as adults sitting on a bench and laughing. So they got all ages covered here. The little girl was holding a long-stemmed red rose. Inside, Michael wrote that he loved Kristen just the way she was. I will never ask you to do anything you don't want to do, Michael wrote in another card. I will never need you to say anything you don't want to say. Michael wrote a poem to Kristen on a Hyatt Hotel notepaper describing the color of her eyes, her skin, and her hair, and the way her body moved with elegance, style, and grace. If she would be a queen, he asked, can I be your king? He signed oh the note. Get ready for this. E-L-E, an abbreviation for I love you. I like eyeball. Love you like female sheep. Wow, And apparently it was a secret message they included in group emails to colleagues and each other as a private joke.
0: Wow, so they're just sprinkling inappropriateness all over everywhere. All over everywhere.
1: Yeah, and apparently after they checked his apartment, he had like another treasure trove of like love letters and cards and stuff that he thought they didn't find, but they were still watching him. And so he like went to the trash and like put it in the trash and like buried it under all this other trash and then like went back to his apartment. And then, of course, they just like walked over, grabbed it. And later they were like, hey, where do you think we found this? And he's like, "Uh, I don't know. And they're like, come on, you know, we saw what you did. And he's like, the trash. You got it from the
0: trash. Oh, my God. I feel like that was like more dumb on his part to put it in the trash than just to like hold on to it or burn it.
1: Exactly. They had already taken a bunch of stuff. So why not just burn it? I guess he's in an apartment in San Diego. He probably doesn't have like a fireplace.
0: I mean, I can think of like several ways to burn something. (laughs) That's true. It doesn't have to be a fireplace. That's a very good point. Yeah. But I think
1: also what is sick about this too, is that there was also dried rose petals found in some of his stuff too. So this was clearly a running thing between the two of them. It's like her signature. It is definitely her signature. Apparently other people said that American Beauty, which is the Oscar-winning movie that's known for like Mina Savari being in the roses,
0: I know was her is. favorite movie. Oh my God. Did she also have a plastic bag flying around in the air, following her everywhere?
1: <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about that part.
0: Yeah, so that was her favorite movie. And
1: uh, apparently there was a bunch of rose petals found in his stuff, as well as a note that she wrote to him about the significance of different colors of roses and what they mean.
0: So original.
1: Also, after studying the two journals, the police concluded that the initial journal had definitely been left out purposely for the investigators to find to support the theory that the marriage was troubled. And that was what drove Greg to suicide. And it seemed like the second journal that they found, they believed had also been a setup. It'd been something she wanted Greg to find. So both of these journals were not written with the intention of her sharing her true feelings. They were both intended for other people to find so that she could pretend those had been her secret thoughts. Yeah. In late January, while under investigation, Kristen did manage to get another job at a biotech company with the help of her old mentor.
0: And she actually did okay at this job. Did she not fill him in about what happened? So he knew what happened, but he did believe her that
1: she was getting unfairly investigated. Okay. He thought that her husband absolutely just died of an accidental overdose or an intentional suicide, but he did not think she had anything to do with it. Okay. So he helped her get a job doing essentially the same type of thing that she had been doing with the medical examiner's office. She was running an HPLC machine, which stands for high-pressure liquid chromatograph, and it's used for toxicology testing. And so speaking of one of these HPLC machines, back at the medical examiner's office, remember Kathy Hamm, who discovered... The love note. Yep. She found something else inside of the HPLC machine that Kristen had been running
0: previously a meth pipe. She's just casually smoking meth while running an intense scientific machine in a toxicology lab.
1: Yes, because it was privately housed in its own room. So it was a, an area that she could get away with it. So they did testing on it. They found I mean, methamphetamine that like- residue.
0: I feel like people who work in these fields, like their discoveries and conclusions are used in like really high profile things. Like, does that eliminate any sort of validation? So I don't think
1: that there was a direct correlation between the rulings on any cases, but I definitely think it does open them up to litigation and appeals, obviously. But it's the same thing. It's kind of mind blowing as, you know, a few cases ago we had the judge that was having an affair with one of the attorneys. Yeah. And you're thinking these are people that are involved in decisions that affect people's lives forever. Yeah. You know? And the honor of someone else's life. Exactly. In the honor of somebody else's life. It's inconceivable to me that this would be an appropriate place to have an affair or smoke meth. It's crazy. But I mean, that's also, she's addicted. It's there, you know, there's, she's sick. This, she's not, you know, we can't put ourselves in her thought process, you know? So basically the residue on the pipe came back positive for methamphetamine and DNA from skin cells left on the pipe matched Kristen. So she could not say that this was anyone else's but hers. Finally, in June of 2001, Kristen was arrested and charged for the murder of her husband. There was a lot of interest in arresting Michael as an accomplice as well, but ultimately they didn't feel like there was quite enough evidence to make it stick that he was a full accomplice.
0: No way. Even the fentanyl patch document?
1: Yeah. I mean, he made a good argument that there was apparently other studies in his desk as well. So it wasn't just that one. And in his job as a toxicologist... He had to be up on the latest literature about different types of drugs. So they had that. They had the evidence of the affair, but they didn't have any really concrete evidence that he had absolutely been involved or for sure knew that this was Kristen's plan because they had all of those emails and all of those love letters and they never once discussed anything about a murder.
0: It's so scary.
1: Yeah. So they let him go back to Australia because his mother reportedly had breast cancer and he appealed to them to be able to go home and take care of her. Obviously, he didn't have anything left to live for in the United States at this point. He had lost his job. And they agreed. They said, you can go home, but we could extradite you at any moment, you know. When Kristen was arrested, a media storm hit. The press began calling the case the American Beauty Murder. Oh, my God. Because of the rose petals, obviously. The case also got attention for how attractive and young Kristen was. Like I said earlier, she was frequently being compared to Jennifer Aniston in the press. Poor Jennifer Aniston. (sighs)
0: Seriously. She didn't do anything wrong.
1: I know. I mean, then you have to deal with Angelina Jolie in a couple years. Not not a good time. No. (laughs) Kristen's parents desperately wanted to get her out of jail, so they saved money by going through the public defender's office instead of paying for a high-priced private legal defense. Then they could basically save up for her bail money. Okay. Due to the media circus around the case, they were appointed two attorneys, Alex Lobeg and Vic Erickson. Erickson was a former meth user himself, and he felt that he had a special insight into the case and Kristen's state of mind because of that. Erickson also stated that he believed Kristen's addiction issues were exacerbated by her enabling parents. Speaking of enablers, Constance and Ralph were doing everything in their power to spin the story in the media. They took every opportunity to talk to the press and say horrible things, as well as some just outright lies about Greg. They claimed that Greg had been controlling, erratic, and abusive in the days leading up to his death. And they also made claims that this was a cycle of abuse because his father had abused his wife before him, which Marie did contest. She said that the reason that was in a filing in the divorce papers was because she had one of her attorneys was kind of overzealous and was like, you should claim this because then you'll get more money in custody or something. And that's why she had retracted it. So she actually disputed that later on. It's crazy that she has to do that. Yeah. So she has to say that. So they're saying in the media, his dad was abusive. He's abusive that he absolutely had access to fentanyl because apparently Eve did have a storage locker where he kept some medical supplies. And they believed, at least Kristen's parents and attorneys, would later say that Greg had access to this storage unit where he could have picked up fentanyl patches. Okay. They also said that Greg had hepatitis B in a way to suggest that he had gotten it through intravenous drug use, but this was just not true. The autopsy proved that he didn't have hepatitis B. So, are you going to just make that up? Just make that up and tell, like, they told Good Housekeeping. They told all of the newspapers in San Diego, all of this stuff. That is so fucked up. Yeah, and essentially, the prosecution was really upset. And of course, Greg's family was upset because they thought that they were trying to essentially poison the jury pool because they're talking about this all the time to any press they can get. And so that, you know, County is going to be the potential jurors. So they're going to read about all this stuff about Greg and potentially go in already having an idea of what happened. So dirty super dirty pool. I mean, that's actually something that I feel like we usually hear about on the other side, like that people are already being tried in the media. And so the defense is like, let's move the case or something. Well, that's what they're doing though. They're victim blaming.
0: Exactly. Yeah, they're doing like the, it's horrible.
1: Yeah, and actually the defense attorneys did not approve of this, by the way. They actually had a really hard time reeling in Kristen's parents and they didn't want them to be saying all this stuff in the media. Alex Lobig later said that the Rossums remained, this is a quote, steadfastly pompous, defensive, and aggressive in their public address that their daughter was innocent without ever coming forward with specific evidence that could aid her defense. Wow. Yeah. So he's like, they were impossible to control, and but they also never gave me anything. They never gave me any like surefire evidence that she didn't do this. Kristen's parents managed to pay the money for her $1.25 million bond and Kristen was released on January 4th, 2002. She would remain free until her trial in October. On October 2nd, only two days before jury selection was set to begin, the investigators on the case unearthed a piece of bombshell evidence. My God, what? Apparently, Kristen had used her Vons card. Vons is a grocery store chain. To buy roses. When she purchased a single rose with baby's breath at 12:41 p.m. on the day that Greg died. How did they not have that before? I don't know. I mean, they they wouldn't have been able to find it had somebody not like not a forensic accountant not gone through her yep. Von's transaction. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. That's what forensic accountants do. Yeah. It was crazy also that she like put her
0: Von's card in while she was Planning a murder. I could totally be a forensic accountant.
1: Maybe, maybe that's your next career.
0: I could like totally do that. I feel like I would be so good. Also, though, she just used one rose. Just one rose. I was imagining like a bed of rose petals. I think you get a lot of petals on one rose,
1: depending I'd on how say, big. The rose I is. bet
0: like how many do you bet? I have no idea. I, bet I did like, not research that in the research for this episode. I bet like twenty-four.
1: Yeah, and that'd be a shit ton of rose petals if you okay. weren't expecting it. We'll have to look this up later. We'll see. (laughs) This not only blew up her story that she was home feeding Greg soup at that time, but also showed that she had purchased the rose used to stage Greg's suicide. Trial began and the prosecution's contention was that Greg had discovered that Kristen was using drugs and having an affair with her manager and that he threatened to go to her superiors if she didn't quit her job and stay away from Michael. Kristen then, you know, in a state of, you know, being involved in a meth binge at this point, used her skills, knowledge, and access to fentanyl to kill Greg and stage it as a suicide. The prosecution brought up that Greg was extremely drug-averse, that he was not suicidal or depressed in the days leading up to his murder, and that not only was American Beauty Kristen's favorite movie, but they had proof that she had purchased a rose on the day of the murder. And they said also that... It would have been hard for her to get another job in this field with her record of drug use, especially if it was why she was fired because she'd have to essentially get a referral, you know, from her last place of work. And they'd be like, well, she got fired for this reason if it came to light. Yeah. And it would ruin Michael's life and he would potentially be deported back to Australia if he didn't have a job. So that could screw up. Their life together. Well, they could screw up their plans and all the coupons. And then there goes they can't cash in their coupons if they're a whole world away. They can't get their dance card
0: punched? No. What are they going to do?
1: So Kristen's attorneys argued that Greg had been so deeply in love with Kristen and unable to live without her that he had committed suicide after she told him that she was leaving him. They said that Greg did have access to fentanyl and though the prosecution stated that fentanyl was so fast acting that had Greg taken it himself, there would have been some evidence, some needle in his vein, some evidence of a patch on his body. Yeah. The defense claimed, though, that they had actually never tested a water glass that the police had noted had been on the side of his bed. So they said that they believed that the fentanyl had been liquid fentanyl, which is colorless, and that he had drank that and that somebody had washed the glass without it ever being tested. And that was where the fentanyl had been. Okay.
0: The one place in the room that they didn't turn over.
1: Exactly. The defense said that there was no motive for Kristen to kill Greg. There was no big insurance payout or real financial reason. They argued that Kristen was young and talented, that even if she had been exposed by Greg and fired for her drug use, that she could have gotten a new job just like she did in January before she went to prison. I mean, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. She did get another job. But I also think that they're being very rational. And she was not thinking rationally at this point, you know?
0: Yeah, of course.
1: There were a lot of witnesses for the prosecution that testified to the affair and Kristen's drug use. Kristen's parents took the stand in her defense, but were basically ripped apart in cross examination, mostly about the lies and misinformation that they spread about Greg
0: in the media.
1: So it just seemed
0: like their credibility was totally shot. Good. Okay. That's a good angle.
1: Kristen also took the stand and she did admit to the affair, her relapse, and that Greg was indeed threatening to expose both the affair and her drug use to her superiors at the medical examiner's office. She contended strongly, though, that she definitely did not have anything to do with his death. She said that she didn't know he had taken fentanyl or else she would have called 911 immediately. She said, just like I said before, her best guess was that he had gotten it from his dad's storage locker and that he had drank it in liquid form. Kristen also said that the rose she had bought at Vons had been yellow, not red. The Vons receipt only said single rose with baby's breath.
0: So who was the yellow rose for? Because that's that actually means friendship. She claimed that she had
1: given it to Michael because he had recently discovered her drug relapse, and that she was trying to appeal to his friendship by giving him the yellow rose. Of course, Michael was in Australia, so he didn't testify to whether that was true or not.
0: Could they contact him or no?
1: I don't know, and he might have lied for her anyway. Of course. Like, sure, I got that rose, you know? In cross-examination, the prosecutor repeatedly brought up and exposed Kristen's lies, the ones that she had told her parents in her life, the ones she told Greg, and even the fact that she had omitted that first dreadful semester from her transcript. Had she included it like she was supposed to, she would have not qualified to graduate summa cum laude or be Phi Beta Kappa, which she ended up being. After eight hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of... Guilty! This was very bittersweet for the DeVillers family because the verdict was returned on November 12th, 2002, what would have been Greg's 29th birthday.
0: Oh, so sad.
1: Kristen was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility
0: of parole. That's an LWOP. It's an LWOP alert. You know what, though? She can still get notes and, like, coupons through jail. Yeah, but... That dance card, never going to get punched. You know, maybe she'll have to find a new partner in jail.
1: Yeah, I guess also I said something that like, if you get a life without the possibility of parole, you can't get married or you can get married, but you can never have conjugal meetings or something. So it's pretty dire, but deserved. This is what happens when you kill people. So yeah, she is still housed at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, which is one of the largest women's prison in the country. In 2006, Kristen and San Diego County were named as defendants in a wrongful death lawsuit filed by the DeVillers family. So this was the DeVillers attorney, Craig McClellan's theory about what happened according to Poisoned Love. So he thought that absolutely Michael was a part of this. Essentially, he contended that the county failed to take certain measures which made it possible for Michael and Kristen to kill Greg. First, McClellan said, the county allowed one of its managers to have an affair with a subordinate. They had a relationship that was mixed with sex and drugs, which resulted in a lack of supervision and drugs being stolen from the office. Yep. Kristen stole the drugs, he said, but Michael probably helped her to keep her happy to keep the love machine going.
0: The love machine love machine
1: A love machine. He encouraged her to leave her husband and spend the holidays with him. Greg wasn't going anywhere, he said, so with Michael's expert knowledge and Kristen's own research, they decided to get rid of him and that no one would notice the difference. McClellan believed that Michael had to know that Kristen was smoking meth in the HPLC room and that all those drugs were missing, especially the fentanyl patches. Michael found meth in her desk, and surely, being an expert in illicit drugs, he would have recognized its effects on her. McClellan also believed that Kristen began putting drugs in Greg's food or drinks a few days before he died, because her parents said he was acting erratically, and I guess some of his co-workers said he didn't seem quite right.
0: Oh, God.
1: He said Michael and Kristen were probably discussing how to do someone in, at least in general terms, while they were at the conference in early October 2000. And when Kristen called Michael at 9.02 p.m. Sunday night, November 5th, he said it was to tell him that she'd given Greg enough of the drug mixture to knock him out. It's possible, he said, that Kristen, with or without Michael's help, put fentanyl patches all over Greg and removed them before she called 911. But he believed it was Michael, the more experienced toxicologist of the two, who administered the fatal dose of fentanyl by injection, taking the drug paraphernalia, vials, wrappers, syringes, or whatever with him. Kristen never mentioned fentanyl to the authorities, he said, because she knew the medical examiner's office didn't test for the drug and she didn't think they'd detect it in Greg's body. Michael gave interviews to police and hung around San Diego until May of 2001 because he didn't think the authorities had enough evidence to prove that he was involved plus
0: michael believed that they would believe his story did they not see they can't test for like those patches and they can't couldn't see like a injection site on it on him at all
1: so there he had been like needles had gone into his body during the resuscitation attempts
0: got it so got there it, were it, got some got
1: puncture it. marks in his body but they okay. believed that they were all when they were trying to revive him got it okay wow Yeah, they could not tell definitively that there was like an area where patches had been on his body. All they knew was that he had an extraordinary amount of fentanyl in his system. The jury ruled for the DeVillers family and the county was forced to pay up $1.5 million and Kristen's estate was forced to pay a whopping $100 million. Now, Kristen obviously doesn't have that sort of money. So it was more... It was more of an effect like if she sold her story or wrote a book or sold the rights to make a movie, that that money would immediately go to the DeVillers and not to her. Okay, good. So that's why it was so much because they, they basically proved that she could get up to $60 million in various revenue streams selling her story. Wow. And so the jury wanted to make sure that it was completely covered no matter how much money she could potentially make from her crimes. It was eventually another judge later reduced the damages award to like $10 million because it was clear that it was never going to be $100 million. She was never going to make that much money, you know? So it still stands. I think they were still awarded with altogether like $4.5 million. Wow. In 2010, Kristen appealed her verdict based on ineffective counsel. The argument was that her defense attorneys should have run their own tests to determine that fentanyl was what killed Greg. But the appeal was denied, so Kristen remains in prison. Unsurprisingly, Michael and Nikki Robertson got divorced. And Michael now lives in Australia where he runs a forensic consulting business. But you probably won't ever see him in the United States again because in 2006, San Diego prosecutors secretly filed a criminal complaint charging Michael with one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice. So if he does come back and set his feet on American soil, he could face up to three years in jail. So far, the Australian government has chosen not to extradite him.
0: And what about poor Nicole? Where is she? I don't know. I hope she's happy.
1: I hope she found a new partner that fulfills her and doesn't cheat on her. And you know, I hope she got everything she ever wanted. And I also, I hope that Greg's family is doing well. Sadly, his mother, Marie, passed not long after his murder. She had been chronically ill and the stress no, of I can't losing even. her... Yeah, son center over. So sad news all around for the DeVillers family, but I hope his brothers are thriving in life as well. So there's no Wikipedia fun fact this week, guys. I'm so sorry. But last week there was actually an extra Wikipedia fun fact. It's actually an IMDB fun fact. Okay. That I didn't get around to. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode about Craig and Stephanie Rubinowitz, it might not make sense to you. But I was trying to find the Scorned Love Kills episode of the Craig Rabinowitz case. And I Googled it and it came up that the same actor who plays Craig Rabinowitz in the reenactments on Love Scorned Kills played another murderer we've covered in the same series, Scorned Love Kills. He played Bob Bashara. Stop it. Master Bob and Craig Rabinowitz, those are two gnarly guys to portray.
0: Yeah, I wonder if he's like typecasted now. You now he's typecast
1: as like a mean, double life having pile of mushy potatoes. Yeah. And it's so funny because the guy doesn't really look like either of them, but I, was I can see say that sorry they have mushy the some-
0: potatoes.
1: I know he's not actually. <laughs> I don't know how he got typecast. Yeah, so I just thought that was interesting. So that's all I got for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. In conclusion, guys, I don't know how many times we got to tell you, do not shit where you eat, especially when you're the manager and it's your employee.
0: It is not a good look. No, you know what else isn't a good look? Is dishing out so many coupons that are going to become... So many coupons that you can never cash in. They're going to become expired. They're non-redeemable. Oh, definitely not redeemable. So it's just, its you shouldn't do that. It's just not a good luck. It's, you're not following through with your word.
1: Yeah, don't issue coupons unless you can actually follow through with it. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered.
0: Love you guys. Thanks. you